I'd just like the record to show for the start that this, this box is inappropriately named. It contains the questions, but it does not contain the answers. <laughs> That's why you're here, Simon. Yeah, it's, it's a question box. It's definitely not a question and answer box. Okay. I do my best to be the answer box. <clears throat> Simon, who, who wrote Genesis? Uh, we don't really know who wrote Genesis. Um, uh, the Genesis itself doesn't tell us who the author was. Uh, and history is, I suppose, un- undecided entirely on who wrote Genesis. But uh, many people believe that Moses himself in, in later years had a key hand in compiling um, some of the history that we find in the first five books of the Bible. And uh, that's probably the the best we can kind of come to an answer, I think, that, that Moses probably had a significant hand, but no doubt others along the way who uh, helped to kind of recall and record sorts of things that we find in the book of Genesis. How did blessing from one human to another, Isaac to Jacob, work out in the Old Testament? Why shouldn't Isaac also bless Esau? Does blessing work in the same way today? Yeah, um, I suppose all we know about how blessing passed from one human being to another in Genesis is what we what we read, and obviously, um, you know, Isaac's understanding was that he, as the sort of patriarch of his family, had a blessing to pass on uh, to one of his children and uh, to his, uh, you know, his son. Um, So I don't know. We can say a lot more about what it looked like in Old Testament times, other than what we what we read there. I certainly don't think it is the same today, but what we do see in the sort of whole sweep of the biblical narrative is that the blessing that comes through this line from Abraham through his children and grandchildren, and as Matthew chapter 1, which we read last night, I think sort of traces through King David and, and into the line of Jesus, then sort of the blessing, as it were, sort of explodes onto the world, I think, at that point. Um, so a blessing which... Uh, begins to be um, begins as sort of associated with a particular family. Uh, part of the promise to Abraham was that this blessing would overflow, and um, we do have glimpses of that overflowing blessing in the Old Testament. You know, you see moments where um, people who aren't part of the descendants of Israel, women like Rahab, you know, for example, in the Bible, who um, find themselves touched by this blessing by inclusion in the sort of covenant community of Israel. There are glimpses of this sort of overflowing that I think God promises, but it's really through Christ that that blessing sort of overflows ultimately to sort of all the nations of the earth. And I think that does radically transform how we understand the way blessing kind of passes from God through this family to to us, if that helps. I don't know, there are a few parts of that question. I'm not sure if I got them all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, What happened to Edom or the Edomites? Does it exist today? Uh, yeah, that's that's a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer uh, to to that, especially to the second part of the question. I'm not sure if there are a modern if there's a modern nation that traces its ancestry back to Edom. Others may know. I'm not sure, but um, uh, as best I'm aware, I think we should conclude that under the hand of the Lord's judgment, the Edomites suffered the same fate as many of the other nations of that that era. Um, and were ultimately kind of obliterated um, because of their refusal to acknowledge 
God is the Lord. Um, yeah, but it's quite possible someone could correct me on that, and there may be a, and there may be a nation these days that sort of has some roots back to the Edomites, but I'm not aware of it. Do you think there was any righteousness in Judah's suggestion that Joseph uh, be sold into slavery if, instead of being killed? Is this a subtle working out of God's prediction, the older, older shall serve the younger? Or is Judah acting better than he realizes? Can you just say that again? Sorry. <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of, kind of a complex, but yep. uh, do you think that there's any righteousness in, in Judah's suggestion that Joseph be sold into slavery rather than being killed? Uh, perhaps on that, is there a subtle working out of God's own prediction uh, that the older shall serve the younger? Or is Judah kind of maybe even unawarely acting better than he realizes even? Yeah. There definitely is in Genesis 37 and in the whole Joseph narrative a, a subtle, if you like, outworking of God's purposes. And we certainly do see that the dreams that Joseph has are being fulfilled in the way that his brothers relate to him, perhaps even in Genesis 37, but certainly in the chapters that follow. And I would say largely the brothers themselves are oblivious to how those purposes are being worked out through them. Um, as I said Yesterday, I'm not sure that there's a lot of reason in the text of Genesis 37 to think well of Judah there. Um, I think he probably has quite questionable motives. But nevertheless, it is true that what God has said will happen in Joseph's life is beginning to be worked out. And uh, it's not inappropriate at all to see that behind Judah's actions, whether you see them positively or negatively or somewhere in between, God is certainly beginning to fulfill what he has promised and prophesied will be the shape of Joseph's life. Yeah. At the, the beginning of Matthew, it gives the family line from Abraham to Jesus um, through Joseph. How is this relevant since Joseph is not, the not Jesus' father? And how does this tie Jesus to the house of Judah? Yeah. So uh, that's a good question. You, you kind of can pick up in the Matthew genealogy that we read last night that um, it traces the family tree of Jesus through his father Joseph, who of course, we understand, is not uh, the blood kind of father of, um, of Jesus. My understanding of that has always been that um, irrespective of the bloodline, um, nevertheless, uh, the way kind of the, in the biblical worldview we think of families and descendants is uh, through the father. That's the way that genealogy is traced through every other generation and certainly um, in the Old Testament as well, that the, the generations are traced through the line of the father and the, and the sons. Um, and so it's most appropriate in the kind of the, the Jewish kind of worldview of the day, that sort of time Matthew was writing, to demonstrate how Joseph, who is known as the father of Jesus, um, is a descendant of those uh, who went before and to whom the promises were given. So I think it's just a product of the biblical worldview that uh, the father, though there's no kind of explicit kind of blood DNA between Jesus and Joseph. Nevertheless, that's the appropriate way in the biblical worldview to trace the line of, of Jesus. That's, that's been my understanding. Uh, the way you spoke about Rebecca's striving to secure the blessing of Jacob sounded a bit like a let go and let God kind of theology. Was Rebecca not acting righteously or in faith in the promise to ensure God's purpose, purposes were carried out? Yeah. Just, just like Tamar as well, and the way she acted in yes. her self-prostitution. Yeah. Uh, it's, again, there's good nuance in that question. I think, um, and I tried to sort of suggest this a little bit, one of the things I think that is in 
um, the favour of Rebecca and Jacob and in the favour of Tamar to some extent is that they do value the blessing and I do think whilst the way they pursue it is extremely difficult to justify, nevertheless their appreciation of the value of what is held in the blessing is something that we're to esteem them for in the narrative, I think. And so whilst Rebecca and Jacob pursued it in, an, in a godless fashion, in many respects I'd want to say, nevertheless, they know it's worth pursuing and that is commendable, I think. Um, I suppose in terms of the way I talked about them as a pattern of um, what we see in the rest of the scriptures of people kind of uh, striving for what God gives freely... Um, I, I certainly didn't want to communicate that uh, there's nothing to be done on the part of humans, and I hope that the sort of the talk this morning helps to clarify that that there is a dual explanation, and that the actions of uh, the patriarchs and their kin in Genesis are a significant part of God working out His purposes. Not as if they just should have sat on their kind of lounge chairs and waited for the blessing to come down through the chimney or something like that. They're, they're active agents in God's world and I certainly wasn't intending to suggest that um, you know Rebecca and Jacob had no part to play in seeking the blessing of the Lord but I just don't think the narrative in Genesis gives us any reason to applaud the way they seek it um, and I think we are urged to see that um, they are uh, working under their own steam in their own way to seek what God has promised to give and in that way, I think they do become a kind of type, a sort of pattern of, of um, people the world over and people that we see even in the New Testament um, who are working in their own way under their own steam to achieve what God has promised. So I suppose I, I see them kind of typologically, if I can say it like that, s- demonstrating a pattern um, which is instructive for us, but I'm not meaning to imply that there's no action to take that they should just let go and let God because I think the kind of explanation I gave this morning of how the sovereignty of God and human responsibility works is actually kind of the, the framework with which we should view that kind of question. I hope that helps to clarify a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a few questions about uh, what happened to Onan um, and his brothers. Um, one says, for the law to be affected, it must be consistent and applied to all. Why in Genesis 38 are Er and Onan punished for breaking the law, but Tamar and Judah receive no punishment? And uh, does this not disregard God's holy law? Um, yeah, one of the... I'm not sure if this is the intention of the question, but one of the first things to say is that um, what we read in, uh, in Genesis is before the law of the Lord. So one of the things I wrestle with as I was kind of thinking about the, the pattern you get in that chapter is that it seems very consistent with the later law, but it's a little bit anachronistic, if I can put it like that, to sort of say, well, they're, um, they're keeping the law when the law actually hasn't yet been given. Nevertheless, the sort of pattern we see of the way that situation is dealt with is entirely consistent with what we find later in the law. I'm not sure if that was sort of part of the question being asked. I think the sort of real heart of the question is why is there different treatment for uh, some and uh, you know for some of the characters whereas Onan and his elder brother get sort of zapped as I said yesterday. Um, God is free to show mercy and I think that's one of the things that we learn in Genesis that um, justice is 
defined by reference to God's character. Uh, God is not beholden to our definitions of what would be just. And I think what we're meant to conclude from that chapter is that God is just uh, in his righteous punishment of the elder brothers. Um, but his justice is not compromised by the showing of mercy. It's, it's true that, um, as I said yesterday in the talk, that uh, you know, the, the others deserve uh, what the older brothers experience, but, but nevertheless God is free to demonstrate his mercy and his justice is not compromised uh, because justice finds its origin in God, not in some uh, concept of justice to which God must submit, if I can put it like that. So um, I don't think there's any kind of... Uh, I don't think the sort of law of the Lord, the demands of the Lord are compromised by the Lord's freedom to show mercy to those uh, upon whom he has placed his promise uh, to bless. So whenever God chooses to do that, people are not getting what they deserve. That's true of us as well. You know, we, um, we deserve the wrath of God, uh, the condemnation of God, the punishment of God. Uh, if we don't receive it, it, it doesn't uh, make God unjust. Um, it just reminds us that he's merciful. Now, that little paradox only ultimately makes sense because of the cross. And if you read, say, Romans chapter 3, Paul wants to argue there how it is that through history, God could possibly have been just to leave sins unpunished. And I think the ultimate answer to the question is there in that wonderful paragraph in the middle of Romans chapter 3, where Paul says that by bringing the judgment of God for sin upon his son, um, he remains just, though he has left sins committed beforehand unpunished. So it's in, the, it's in the atonement at the cross that God's justice is sort of perfectly worked out and perfectly seen, and I'm sure it remains mysterious to us in some ways, but the fact that some receive mercy and don't receive what they deserve is nevertheless just entirely um, according to the argument of the Scriptures. The other place where I think you kind of... Uh, find an interesting reference to that is in that passage in 1 John where God is both faithful and just to forgive our sins. Again, I think the word just there is a bit surprising to us, but in the, in the mind of the biblical authors, God's forgiveness uh, when his people repent, uh, his mercy is actually an expression of his justice, not an undermining of his justice. But I think the Romans 3 passage is sort of the, the heart of it. Uh, why can't God bring and interact good without using evil and suffering? Why does, does he or did he allow evil and suffering ever to enter into the equation of life if indeed he is an absolute control and Lord over all? Yes. Um, I, I don't think fundamentally I'm in any place to answer that question. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind that God is sovereign and ruler of all. And he could have chosen to do things any way he pleased. So hypothetically speaking, I'd want to say, of course, he could have invented a world that was all good without uh, the possibility of evil. Um, but God has chosen to do it the way he has. And ultimately, you'll have to ask him uh, why he has. Um, however, I, I would say that... Um, if you believe the sort of storyline of the Bible, that, um, that, that the ultimate sort of purpose of God is the honouring of his son and the fame of uh, his name, then uh, that does suggest to me at least that 
um, that the place of suffering and evil in the world is an integral cog in the demonstration of God's love for people and uh, his, the great lengths he was willing to go to um, in order that his son might be glorified by his act of sacrifice and love. You know, I suppose if you, you need to ask yourself if you were to look over God's shoulder as he was sort of, if you could imagine it like this, drawing up the plans of the world, you know, while he's at his desk sometime before the creation of the world, you know, what would you see him drawing? Um, I don't think the Bible is telling us that you would see a picture of the Garden of Eden. I think ultimately you would see him drawing a picture of the cross of Christ and his resurrection. That's, that's where it's headed. That's what God um, made the world for in the end. And if, um, and I think we're speculating a little here, that's why I say you have to ask God, if in his purposes um, his son would be more greatly glorified by experiencing that great evil and that great suffering, and if the love of God for his people would be better and more widely known through that moment of history, then there would be, in our speculations, good reasons uh, for the God who made the world to make it in the way that he did, that we might better know the extent of his love for us and that we might better know um, how worthy his son is of all our praise. So that's, a, that's a suggestion, but at the end of the day, it's, it's God's question to answer. How can we reconcile God's sovereignty uh, and evil and Paul's command in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armour of God and our struggle against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think those two things both make sense because of the framework that I was trying to articulate this morning. Um, God, uh, God is sovereign, and uh, he is sovereign in a world that includes evil and suffering, and he doesn't cease to reign over those things simply because they exist in his world. Nevertheless, we have a responsibility as uh, Christian people to take a stand against evil and against the evil one uh, who, who does exercise genuine power in the world. It's, it's power in submission to God. That's what I was saying this morning about the sort of Star Wars view of the world. It's not a kind of an unresolved conflict between good and evil in the world, between God and the evil one. Um, Satan exists, works, exercises whatever authority he has under the authority and the power of God. I think that's the view of the Bible. Um, yet nevertheless, that's real. Satan is real. His power and authority are real and uh, his temptations are real and therefore Christians must arm themselves, Paul says, with the gospel to combat uh, the evil one and his schemes. It's part of the responsibility we exercise and, and God remains sovereign in that process. So I don't see any contradiction between the call to, to fight against evil, to resist temptation, to flee from the devil... Um, and the sovereignty of God working in the world to bring these things about. I hope that helps with that question. There's been a few questions about the whole idea of God's sovereignty and our free will. Um, can you explain the balance between God's sovereignty and our free will? Uh, for example, when we mess up and make mistakes, disobey God, how do we explain that? How do we explain that God's in sovereign over that? And I suppose further to answer the questions, maybe if you could explain what the Bible says about free will. It doesn't say free will, but what yeah. does the Bible explain about our wills? Yeah. Um, I would want to say, to begin with, that I think the kind of language of free will 
uh, is not the most helpful language we could use to discuss and describe this dilemma. It's a very real dilemma and I'm, I'm keen to wrestle with it with you. Um, I think the Bible resists using the language of free will for, for a very good theological reason and, and that is that at the end of the day, I think outside of Christ and his grace, we're not ultimately free. We are slaves to our sin and uh, we are not capable, apart from the gift of God's spirit, of making choices freely. Uh, we are in bondage to our sinful desires. And f- for that reason, I'm more comfortable talking about the active will of humans, which I think is you know, obviously part of how we've been created, rather than our free will. We don't have freedom biblically until we come to Christ and find ourselves in Christ. Uh, when the Spirit liberates us from our bondage to sin. So that's an important part of understanding how the Bible talks about this, I think, an important part of addressing the question. Nevertheless, God has made us as human beings with, with a will and with the capacity for making decisions and choices and taking directions. Um, and uh, I think it's certainly the case, again, like I was saying this morning, that um, that is a genuinely real explanation, but it must sit alongside another explanation. And I think what Genesis is arguing for and what the Scriptures as a whole teach is that there are two explanations for every event that takes place in our lives. And what I was saying this morning, and I suppose what's come through, I hope, over the talks, is that the Godward explanation may often be mysterious to us and beyond our wisdom to discern. Um, We may be better placed to explain our own actions than God's, but in the case of us, uh, I think the question talked about messing up and you know continuing to sin. Um, we may be well placed to explain the things that contributed to our own sinfulness, why we did this, uh, why we weren't better at resisting temptation. We may not be brilliant at that, but we may have better access to that. Um, we may not be able to explain what God is doing, why God might, in his purposes, um, use this moment of our sinfulness Uh, for his glory and for our sanctification. Um, We may not be able to explain that and often I think God's purposes in these moments and especially in our sin are hidden to us and I was saying this morning that I think that's probably the normal position we find ourselves in. We're like Joseph at the bottom of the well and we're like the disciples of Jesus at the foot of the cross. You know, if someone asks you, why is this happening? Why is God doing this? We're just scratching our heads. We can't give an answer and I think that's often the case with our own lives and our own sin. Uh, why is God allowing this? Why would God be, you know, what, what is God doing here? I don't think we often can answer, but I think the Bible gives us a promise that there is a second explanation to this event and, and it's an explanation that will and must always find its, uh, its ultimate expression in the goodness and the wisdom of God. And whether we can see it or not, faith is the commitment to believing it. And... Um, that, I think, is sort of critical to walking by faith and not by sight in, in the world. What can we do to cultivate our hearts uh, to trust in the 50-20 principle? Any practical steps? Yeah. It's a wonderful question, a great encouragement to a preacher to hear people uh, pondering how they might actually sort of take these things to heart. Um, I, I do think we play a significant role with one another in fellowship in this area. Um, 
One of my reflections pastorally as I deal with people in my own church, in my own friends, my own life, is that sometimes um, in an effort, I think a godly and wise effort to listen well and uh, to allow people to sort of express and experience their grief, we're sometimes too slow to remind each other of these things. Um, it's become popular in, in my part of the world to talk about it being sort of okay to be angry with God. I'm not really sure that's true, and I think it's dangerous for us to allow ourselves to um, move beyond expressing appropriate grief and uh, understandable confusion at what God may be doing in our world and in our lives, and to move beyond that to pointing the finger at God, to suggesting that he's not being good to us. And I think part of our responsibility to one another as brothers and sisters is to pull each other up when we're at that point, when we're tempted to cross that line, uh, we must keep reminding each other God is good and that he is wise. And whilst we don't understand this and we can't make sense of it and it's right for you to feel grief and confusion, um, it, it's, it's never true to say that, that God's left the building or that God is being something other than perfectly kind to us. And so part of, I suppose, the discipline of learning this is the discipline of encouraging each other and reminding each other in good times and in hard, that, that God is good to us. Um, partly, I think it's about uh, disciplining our language as well. So one of the things that, um, again, I've noticed in our circles in, back in Sydney is that uh, when something good happens, uh, we'll often say to each other, God was very kind to me. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I've, I've been thinking lately, we, I think we need to work against that. The implication of that is if uh, God, you know, if this didn't work out the way I, I wanted, then maybe God's being something other than kind. Uh, so I think for our own sakes and for the sake of others, I want to be really careful how I use language so that I don't imply things like that. Um, you know, so when something great happens, I want to give praise to God for his goodness. And there are ways to articulate that without implying that um, if when things are going pear-shaped or terrible in my life, that God's somehow less than kind, less than good. So good Christian fellowship that encourages each other, discipline with our language... And I suppose beyond that, I just want to say the kind of obvious but absolutely fundamental things of reading the scriptures and uh, praying that God would help his word to sink deeply into our hearts. I do think this teaching is um, sprinkled liberally through the scriptures. I think it's hard to read uh, two or three pages of the scriptures without coming up again against and before the sovereignty of God and his good purposes for his people. So... uh, I would hazard a guess that those who are most steeped in his word will find it easiest um, to respond well when the times of trouble come because they've learnt well who God is and what he is like and what his purposes are for his people. So our our reading of the scriptures and our prayers, whilst that's an obvious thing to say, are absolutely fundamental to learning these things well. You mentioned in your Saturday morning talk that Israel have a special place in God's heart. How does that play out today? Yeah, thank you. Um, I suppose uh, I, did, I did say that um, the special place that Israel had in the Lord's heart then has not ceased to be the case. And I suppose uh, by saying that, I'm reflecting particularly on what I think the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 9 to 11. And um, we don't have time now for a full exposition of those chapters, but I'd point you in that direction if this is your question. Um, I think what the Apostle Paul argues for there is that the promises that God made to his people 
um, that they would be sort of a nation of his treasured possession and that through them the blessings would overflow to the whole world. I think Paul's argument is that those promises stand. It's not as if in the process of the blessings overflowing to the whole world, Israel's place in God's heart has been replaced by um, you know, a wider, more universal church as if God now has no special interest in the promises he once made to Israel. I think Paul's argument is that God will keep those promises and I think the particular way it seems to me Paul's arguing we will see those promises fulfilled is that uh, before the Lord Jesus returns, there will be a great return of Israelites um, to him through repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think Paul's argument is that whilst the current time is a time for the, um, the Gentiles to be grafted onto the vine, to use his language, there will, there will come a moment in history and perhaps um, you know, we're in that moment now, who knows in God's purposes, where many of his children, the Jews, uh, will come back in and will identify Christ as king and submit themselves to him and thus God's purposes for them will be ultimately fulfilled. That's what I think Paul's arguing in Romans 9 to 11. You can read it and come to your own conclusions. Do you think in marriage there is many people that you're compatible with or is there just one? The special one, the one question. How this, do you find this that special one? This is obviously a reference one? to Genesis chapter 51. <laughs> um, feel like the uh, question time has turned a corner here. We have transitioned. Great. Um, uh, fundamentally, I don't think uh, this is a, a, a question the scriptures answer, uh, except for at a certain point. Once you are married, there is one. Um, well, from that moment when you make your covenant, when you pledge yourself to another, that other is the one until death parts you. Uh, that's, that's the teaching of the scriptures. Um, I don't think the scriptures uh, teach that um, prior to that moment, um, you are on a search for um, the only person in the entire universe with whom you could be compatible. Um, I'm thankful for that. It would be an exhausting process. Um, but I, uh, you know, so for that reason, I think Christians ought to exercise godly wisdom as they seek, um, as they seek marriage. If that's uh, what they seek, they should seek someone with whom they share grace and uh, trust and loyalty to Christ. That's by far the most important thing. I don't think I would want to go to the other extreme and say that notions of compatibility are, uh, you know, meaningless or irrelevant. I do think we find ourselves attracted to and connected with other human beings in wonderfully beautiful ways that aren't the same from one person to the next and it's part of the goodness and richness of God's creation that we find it to be so. Uh, even in our friendships, that's the case. You know, we find ourselves drawn to some more than others and it's part of God's good gift to us and I think we'd be foolish to uh, ignore that and I, I wouldn't want to pretend either that the experience some people have of meeting someone and uh, discovering that in that person they, they've found a, a joy and a satisfaction that they've never experienced with someone else before. I wouldn't want to rubbish that experience as if that doesn't exist but I wouldn't want to biblically mandate it as if um, that's the quest you're on as a single person is to find the one other human being somewhere on the planet uh, who God has set apart for you. But nevertheless, there are some beautiful things in God's creation that you know, I want us to enjoy.
in a, in a similar vein, I would love to... I would Genesis love, 52 now? Yeah. <laughs> I would love to meet my life companion, but find it extremely difficult to meet Christians of the opposite sex that I'm attracted to. And if I do, I find, I find it even harder to initiate anything or anything, or often find I repel them. Any advice? <laughs> I don't know who wrote this. I don't know if I can say much apart from you should go back and read Genesis 52 again. I mean, I... I think it's got all the answers there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is probably um, a very genuine question from a, a brother or sister who's having a difficult uh, time in life that's probably a cause of, of great grief. And um, uh, I think if uh, someone asked me the question sort of privately and I knew them, I may be better placed to answer it. I feel ill-equipped to answer it well in this in this context. Um, so I probably I think the best thing for me to do is to encourage uh, someone who feels these sorts of things to consult with those who know them best and uh, they will be better placed to discuss humbly and honestly with you why it might be that this has been your experience um, and what sorts of steps you could take uh, to, to change it under God. And it may be that good Christian friends can help in, in this way. So I just encourage whoever asked that question, others who may feel the same, to courageously share their experiences with someone who knows them well and can journey with them through it. That's not a satisfying answer from the front, but that's good my advice. pastoral instinct. Very good advice. Um, I know a godly guy who really struggles with homosexuality. He knows God's word um, and he hasn't acted on his desires. He doesn't want this burden and yet... He can't shake it off. Can he still experience true freedom? And how, how do we help him? Yeah. Um, it's hard to know exactly what the questioner means by true freedom. Um, there is no doubt in God's world that um, anything is possible. And uh, I, I know of people who have had this struggle and have ended up um, feeling free of it under God's good hands, that they've come to a point in their life where their same-sex attraction uh, feels like a thing of the past. And in some cases, I'm aware of people who've um, met and then you know, happily married someone of the opposite sex and our life has continued in that vein. However, I also know uh, people who have struggled with same-sex attraction um, for whom it has become a, up to this point at least, a lifelong struggle and who have chosen to live in uh, celibacy uh, and singleness as they continue to struggle with unwanted desires in this way. Uh, so I'd want to say, I suppose, pastorally that um, whilst God is capable of delivering a person from uh, unwanted same-sex attraction, it doesn't seem to me experientially to be always the way God chooses to work. Again, his, his purposes are mysterious to us. Um, I don't think it would be unhelpful for a Christian friend in this circumstance to encourage a brother or sister in that circumstance to pray that God might deliver them from the feelings they have which they don't want. God is capable of answering that prayer. Um, God may choose to answer it according to his will. Um, I think in our context, it's uh, very important that as churches, as groups of Christian friends, 
Uh, we're very careful in the way that we speak about such things so that we create an environment in which it's possible and safe for a brother or sister struggling with such things to share openly with us. Um, often, as I've spoken with people who are in this circumstance, they feel even in Christian communities where they know they are loved, like they cannot go there, that they cannot uh, raise these things or speak openly about them because they fear the judgment of other Christians. And sometimes because of the things they've heard Christians say, jokes they've heard Christians make, um, which we need to repent of and change so that we create an environment in which people uh, who have this very lonely struggle can struggle with it in a less lonely way. Um, I would encourage people struggling in this way to, to courageously share, even though they feel fearful of doing so, and to choose wisely, at least to begin with one or two, with whom they could share this, who they do trust deeply. And those brothers and sisters, I think, can encourage them uh, to keep choosing the path of righteousness despite what they struggle with. I think one of the very important things to be saying to a person in this situation um, is that the temptation they feel is not in itself uh, sinful and the choice to um, respond righteously to it is, uh, is, is a godly and, and wonderful and beautiful thing. In my experience, many who struggle with this issue feel, even though they may have chosen a path of celibacy and never acted on their desires, they feel nevertheless uh, dirty and ashamed and guilty um, simply because of the desires they've found themselves with. And I think it's important to keep ministering the gospel of grace to such people to recognise that there may be the possibility that their desires have strayed into sin, but to keep reassuring people that um, whilst they walk a, a righteous path of celibacy and sexual purity, um, the Lord is pleased with them and their Christian brothers and sisters can gladly accept and, and welcome them as they struggle with it. Uh, again, this is a hugely complex issue and I'm in no place to help individuals in this con context deal with it, but um, you will know brothers and sisters or church elders or leaders who, who could help and uh, you should share with them. Did Jesus die for everyone or just for the chosen? And if so, why are most, why, if most preachers believe in limited atonement, why do they preach Jesus died for all? Uh, yeah, a complex question. Um, There's a few questions there. <laughs> yeah, there are a few questions there. Uh, can you just repeat the first part? Of the, sorry, you just dropped it in the box. The first part, did Jesus die for everyone or just the chosen? Yeah. Um, the elect. Yeah, I'd want to confess at this point that this, this issue of sort of definite atonement is an issue about which I've had to think sort of long and hard and I've felt um, uncertain about it at various points in my Christian life. I think probably over the last couple of years as I've continued to think about it and wrestle with the scriptures, um, I've moved more kind of firmly to the conclusion uh, that it's the appropriate way to speak theologically about the atonement is that it is uh, for and effective for those whom God has chosen and that it is in very real sense uh, uh, not the trajectory of the scriptures to speak of Christ's death being for all um, so uh, I think I've become persuaded over the years, um, although not without wrestling. So I I'm, suppose I'm just wanting to acknowledge that this is a difficult issue and one about which mature Christians who love the scriptures have 
debated long and hard. Um, but I, I, I think I have come to the conclusion that it's, it makes the most sense theologically of the things the scriptures teach us about grace and God's purposes in election and atonement. Um, uh, if there are preachers... Uh, so there may well be many preachers across the world who, who do believe in definite atonement and many who don't. Um, it makes perfect sense, of course, why those who don't would, would preach that Christ died for all um, it makes less sense to me why those who believe that Christ, um, Christ's death is for the elect would preach that Christ died for all. You'd have to ask them exactly what they mean and, and what that kind of looks like in their system. There, there's no doubt uh, that the scriptures talk about the love of God for the world in very universal terms. And this is one of the things that I think creates the debate because uh, people want to be able to articulate you know, the sorts of things that John 3.16 says when it talks about God loving the whole world and sending his son and, um, you know, it is important that we keep proclaiming that but I think we can proclaim that uh, without necessarily uh, confusing people about the nature of the atonement. So, um, you know, in terms of other preachers and their practices, you'll have to uh, talk to them. I'm careful as I preach uh, not to imply that Christ's death somehow opens... Uh, is somehow kind of universally applied, but I am careful as well to keep proclaiming to people as I preach that uh, God has, in one sense at least, a love for the whole world. That love is different to the love he has for his elect. One of the books on the bookstore, the Don Carson book on the difficult doctrine of the love of God is excellent on this, I think, at explaining um, what it means to say that God loves the world and yet what it means to say that God has a love that's in some senses different for his chosen people. It's a good book to read. I found it very helpful when I first heard him sort of articulating those things. So God's love for the world is distinct in some ways from his love for his chosen people. And I think we see his uh, love expressed for his chosen people in the atonement in a very particular way. That's the conclusion I've reached and that's how I would try to preach. That's a tough one. Can we go back to one of those questions about Dermo now? <coughs> Do you have something to say about it? No. <laughs> yeah, Demo should read Genesis 53. Yeah, 53. Thank you very We're much, done? Simon. Okay. I think uh, we'll call it a day at that. Great. I'm very uh, happy if you want to come and... Yep. Yeah, I suppose just to reiterate, there is a number of questions that...